Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Scott O'Neill, who's the founder of Rethink Investing. Scott and his wife have amassed a property portfolio in the tens of millions of dollars by the age of 31. They're both able to retire at age 28. They enjoy a solid passive income from their property portfolio and are able to travel three to six months of the year. We have a chat to Scott about how they've been able to achieve those results and the types of properties that have enabled to get to that level. We put the magnifying glass specifically on commercial property as well and Scott's got some great advice about saving, about assessing the growth and yield fundamentals for the property and about the types of commercial properties that he's investing in as well. It's a fantastic listen and Scott's very generous with the information and the time I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. Here's Scott. Scott O'Neill, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to to chatting to you for a long time and uh, we've been following you on social for a while. It's it's some pretty good, uh, I I have to say, enviable reading. But for people that that don't know you, Scott, um, uh, who who are you and what do you specialise in? So my name's Scott O'Neill. I'm founder and director of Rethink Investing. So we're a buyer's agency that purchases commercial and residential real estate all across the country. And we've been around uh, coming up to five years and we've become one of the largest uh, buyer's agents in the country in that time. So we've done over 1,200 successful deals with clients and yeah, it's been an exciting journey those so are, far. For, for people that sort of don't know the buyer's agent uh, industry intimately, those are, are pretty impressive figures there. And and, and I think a, a lot of that has really come to the way that you're sort of presenting investing to investors and, and, I, and I definitely want to dive into that. But can we get a little bit of dirt on you first? What were the what were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up? Oh, I didn't really have any to be honest. I, um, yeah, I was always sort of an outdoors person I you know used to love surfing um like my father was a mentor at the start he was uh, an accountant he did quite well um he was in the car industry so um yeah always liked cars and yeah he, he was he instilled sort of the importance of saving and you know basically investing money from an early day age and I um yeah learned a lot from him and yeah that's that's yeah, pretty much what we had growing and up. Normally, I like to to ask the next question of, of how you got started in property in your first investment, but I, I think we might sort of double back on that one because um, you sort of cite that as as something that really sort of launched your portfolio. So we'll come back to that. But just getting to your, I guess, your social media presence and your profile, I, I think a lot of the success has to be because you seem to project what investors want. That being freedom with your traveling you know, three to six months of the year and the security, um, which I guess comes from some of the, the types of properties that you uh, that you select. Can you sort of let us know what you're enjoying in terms of the freedom and travel and that sort of stuff, your work-life balance and that sort of thing? Yeah, so it was always, um, for me, it was never really about just having an, a number or a number of properties or the amount of money I'd make per year. It was really just trying to buy time back. It was mostly because I really didn't like my job. I was an engineer. I uh, My first job out of uni, we were working six days a week, um, but it was always across the weekend. We were building rail lines. So whenever the rail lines are closed, we were working. So that includes Christmas, Easter, you know, all, all the good dates you were working. And it kind of made me a little bit more detached from friends and family as a result. You know, health wasn't as good. And I just thought, you know, even though the money was good at the time, this is not the way to live life. And that also coincided with my wife losing a mother as well. And uh, we just really viewed it as like we've got to live life for today. And that encouraged us to start chasing properties that would replace my wife's income, number one. So she wasn't on a big income at the time. It was early on. We're in our early 20s. And that was the goal. And once that goal was hit, it was more just trying to Build an income for myself to potentially work less or take a uh, take an easier job. Um, I never did at the time. I just kept chasing extra money because once I saw it going into the property market and doing well out of it, it was a no brainer to kind of push it to a manageable level that I could actually yep. get out of work. And 
I did at the age of 28. At the time, it was 190 grand passive income. So that was enough to replace my income. And we went over to Europe and booked a one-way ticket. We uh, stayed over there all summer. We were over there for over six months. And just the income coming in, we weren't, we were living in Greece mostly, but did many other countries while we were there. And just seeing the bank account not get sucked dry every month was, you know, that was sort of the moment we realized, yeah, that, that was it. And it was from chasing high income properties and things like unit blocks um, were, were very important, house and granny flats. But it was really the growth on the side which made it all possible. Like, you know, people know me for buying high cash flow assets, but it's the capital growth which was really the kicker. You know, I had three years where we made over a million in yeah, right. capital growth. Uh, in those years, we were making, as I said, around 200 grand passive income from cash flow. So a million growth versus 200,000 you know, income. That is an interesting point different. because I, I would tend to agree with you that from from the outside, it's, you know, Scott's sort of raison d'etre is, is high-yielding cash flow properties and, and we do sort of tend to think that you can only have one and, and not the other, but interesting to hear you say that you've been able to do both. Can we wind back the clock a bit and, and talk to talk about the, uh, the you know the eighteen to twenty year old Scott? Obviously, you were um, you know, an engineer. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that the salary was pretty good, and that was a good launching pad. I'm interested in in, in your views on how important that salary is to, to get did your results and yeah, well, I yeah. think it's very important. Yeah, without the salary, it just slows everything down. And you know, I'm not ashamed to say I. One of the reasons I picked engineering was I looked at the pay graduates were getting at a university, and it was it was about forty percent higher than uh, marketers, accountants, lawyers. It was it was very high at the time. So I thought, you know what, it's an outdoor job. You know, you get to be on site, you get to work in different locations. That sounds good, but it pays well. So that pushed me that direction because I was working so much it meant I wasn't spending money uh, elsewhere as much so deposits were easier than normal to save and yeah that, that was definitely a very helpful point and I then moved to Port Macquarie like I, I chased pay rises for, for a few years like I said I saw the property market working for me and I wanted to speed that up and not work until I was 60 so earning more was a vital part of it. It was vital to get the loans in the early days. And it's save for it's the interesting to, to hear what what sounds like you being quite strategic. From I'm guessing earlier than 18, like if you're you're picking engineering because you're you're chasing the salary, you're wanting to to save the money and and, and put it into property. Did did that come from good mentors like your father, or you know, with with, with your wife losing your mother? Did that kind of reframe? All right, well, you know, things can disappear on us very quickly we only get one go at life let's let's get serious yeah and and i like I, I was also surrounded like i won't name names but a few people that um lost a lot of money um you know especially around the gfc i saw many people i know um you know fathers friends and that um are people that would lose 50 percent of their life savings through the share market for instance or buying in a mining town was common at that time uh, people were losing out so that made me think, you know, like if, uh, I just wanted to invest earlier on, but invest in the right properties. It made me very risk adverse as well. Um, like what, what I mean by that is I always kind of picture what if yep. GFC number two hits tomorrow and that's going to mean there's uh, a lot of unemployment, um, you know, loans are harder to get, you know, there's what's that going to look like for property? And there are some properties that actually do okay in those situations and some that go the opposite way and fall sharply and that's influenced how I buy and, to this And day. let's start with the first property because I'm guessing it, it, it fits that formula as well because you sort of cite that as being uh, something that that really launched you as I mentioned previously and 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 also I, I read a story about you being quite nervous at, at throwing the, the money into the property because the market I'm guessing was a little bit similar to the market we're in at the moment. Can you, can you tell us about this first um, purchase and, and how that stuff you're doing today? Yep. yep. So it's 2010. Yeah, 2010 was the first purchase, and I remember reading many, many articles online, and the common story was a 20 to 40 percent drop. 
at the time. They were all predicting it, all the experts saying Sydney's, you know, due for its long-awaited bus. The US market had fallen. It's just inevitable until it happens here. And I had the deposit. You know, I was using LMI, did a 90% loan in a property. Uh, so I was obviously very nervous doing all that. But I basically came to the conclusion, like, I found a property. It was in Sutherland. So that's, it was only about 500 metres from the train station there, Sutherland Shire. It was, it had 650 square metres of land. And I looked at it and go, well, number one, I was, you know, 22, 23 um, when I was looking. In 40 years, what's that going to look like? I'm right next to, you know, a train station that can shoot you into the city in less than 40 minutes. That works. Not far from the beach. That works. And it had a house and granny flat on it. So I thought if this crash happens, there's probably going to be more renters that would want my cheap, you know, older house arrangement. You know, that so it will rent nicely in the time. And even on very conservative rental estimates, it was producing about 11,000 a year passive income. Wow. So I thought if it, if it goes terrible for three or four years, I'm still getting 10 grand a year that I wasn't getting anyway. Yep. So that uh, just took the growth concerns out of the picture. And you no know, funny thing, I look back, even accounting for um, the recent falls in Sydney, over the late last eight years, um, it's grown 570000 that property. So I paid four eighty, and it's grown at five seventy on that. And um, that works out to be $1,400 a week in growth wow. so that you know i've been getting about sort of 15 grand passive income from it recently after all maintenance so that growth obviously put me in a very good position to leverage off and and go again we, we talk a fair bit on this podcast about how important just on the back of the stats that the majority investors are still just getting one investment property which is is probably not enough to give them the lifestyle or the retirement sort of outcomes that they that they was for you do you think your trajectory would have been different if you'd made a bad investment and 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 do do, do why do you think investors are maybe getting that first property wrong uh i think they just get the wrong advice um particularly like if you've listened to most people in the last couple of years they uh, like one of the main reasons people um, would not go through my services. They would because uh, we're not yeah. buying in Sydney um, at the moment. We uh, and people would come to us and say, "Look, I oh, look my parents or my uncle or you know my brother want to buy in Sydney, so they would hold off buying interstate or you know you know even a Newcastle type location." And if you look at the results, if you go, you know, if you've bought a property down in the Southern Shire in the last twelve months, you've lost nearly fifteen percent value. So you could imagine how long that would take you to go again. You literally need that could take three or four years. Your cash flow is no good in the meantime, which won't help loans. And that's that's a game changer. So if you go then buy, you know, have a good result where you get 10% growth over the next two years on a cheaper property with better cash flow, you're straight away into your next one. Yeah. You know, assuming you can lend, which. You know, if you've got a full-time job, you buy something with good cash flow. There shouldn't be too many hurdles um, unless you've got, you know, large costs. But you've got a better chance to go again by buying the right asset. And, you know, it's just people don't know where to look. People listen to the media too much. The media's there to sell papers. Journalists don't often own many properties, if any. Uh, I am generalising, but the they're there to sell papers and they're not expert investors and that's just going to mean they you know they're pushing an agenda to crack clickbait for, yeah. for the media and that's um, obviously one of the largest influences in market sentiment and and, and yeah exactly and and I think that's a, a very important point for for listeners is that um, you've got to be very careful where you're getting that advice and and the media has its own agenda of of increasing their revenue and circulation talking about some of these um cash flow properties so that the properties that are you know yielding seven or eight percent um people people will argue that if it's doing that then it just can't be a growth asset um so properties that that might be regional or or on the fringe of a capital city that are that are that are getting that sort of rental return do you believe that 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 makes them an an insuperior investment to to something like a, a blue chip Sydney thing might be over the long term? 
there's many different ways to look at it. Like if you go buy a 10% yielding one income, like a three-bedroom house in Burke, you're going to get 10% yield. Yes, your growth won't be any good out there. The population growth sucks, no good. The, uh, the income growth is same story. Um, so it won't grow as much as, say, a Sydney location. But you can get both. And this is where a lot of people, they just don't know where to look. Sets in the last 12 months was a 7.3% net yield warehouse in Newcastle. So that my property, I bought it for around 400 and sold it because uh, I was buying a house to, uh, to live in. So, I, you know, I basically freed up some cash. Uh, but it grew to 495000 in mm-hmm. 12 months. So that's 95000 that grew in 12 months, which is 1700 per week. But that also produced 20000 passive income during the time I held it because it was a highly cash flow positive yeah. property. So there's ways to get both. And, um, you know, dual income properties is probably the most common way of getting a capital city location with a good income. You know, there's, um, you know, there is an argument that regional areas don't grow as quick. Um, you know, and if you buy in sort of the, I bought a lot in, in Port Macquarie, that did very well, still is. It's got a lot of, um, you know, incomes are quite good there. You've got a lot of people moving from Sydney to retire in Port Macquarie, the healthy market. And they're, uh, they're doing large upgrades. Well, when I was up there, we were building the highway, the Pacific Highway, 100 kilometres of dual carriageway. That brought a lot of people into town, cut travel times down uh, from Sydney. They're, uh, they were fixing up the university, the you know, hospital. There, there was all sorts of things coming into town which created more employment opportunities, which you know, brought people to town, rents rose, and yeah, there, there was opportunities there. So... Uh, I don't just go by regional areas, um, you know, if, you know, just for the yield. You've got to have a bit of the growth side yep. of it as well. But uh, I, I won't lie, I, I, like, I prefer capital cities. It's just a better feeling knowing that, you know, look look across the world, people are moving from rural areas to urban cities. It's a global trend and it's not Interesting. slowing down. Interesting. I found really interesting is it's easy to talk about what it's renting per week and that it's maybe, you know, costing you 10 or $20 in your pocket or it's putting $50 back. You, you're also talking about uh, capital growth in terms of the week as well. So do you think that's a, a mindset set sort of thing that investors don't necessarily think of? Like if you're earning $2,000 a week and you've got a property that's giving you $1,000 a week in growth, you can sort of start doing that that calculation in your head well how many of those do i need that will actually replace that that income from an equity standpoint exactly like return on equity is everything so if you put 100 grand into buying a $400,000 property so that's roughly a you know an 80% LVR you put 20% of 400 grand down that's 80,000 plus your stamp duty and other costs just call it 100 grand if that property grows by 5% mm. 20,000 you've made so that's a 20% return on the equity you invested. You may have got five grand passive income a year from that property, so you've then made 25% return on equity. That's how I look at property. And you know, you, if you ignore one side or the other, um, most investors I see, uh, it's not as common as it used to be, but they would, you know, want to save tax over getting an overall return um, because they would view it as a yeah, long-term growth, but they won't quantify anything. They would buy because they've got a good feeling of the suburb. You know, it's an up-and-coming area, and there wasn't much science behind it. It was more just a, an opinion. And uh, when you break the numbers down and realise that if you buy a negatively geared property, it's going to probably hurt your lending, which will hurt you being able to buy another property in the future. If you can control more assets over a longer period of time, you generally do better than buying one or two blue chips and holding them long term. I rather have, you know, triple the amount of properties with better cash flow, and you know, you, you're not relying as much on growth because even moderate growth, you're going to get a better overall result if you continue yeah, to serve yeah, that. Yeah, and you've loan. got more leverage with with more properties. Um, there's obviously an opportunity cost calculation there as well. Um, 
There'll be people sort of listening uh, to some of these talks, uh, I guess, chats about the, the high yield and the cash flow, such as the warehouse. Um, I, I was looking at a bit of a case study the other of a property that had a, you know, a, a 7% sort of gross um, yield. Um, and really sort of pre-tax, it was only working out that it was going to be fairly sort of neutral based on, um, you know, the interest rate for, for an investor and that sort of thing. How, what sort of yields do we need average um, to, to be able to, to get to the, the cash flow positive point of view and, and, what, and where, where can we source these types of properties? Um, so different for different types of assets. So uh, you're right, with a residential property, you've got to cover the cost of rates, insurance, maintenance, rental management. It all, you know, even land tax, it all comes out of your pocket. So you need, you know, like you said, you need about that 7% um, depending on the interest rate and the, the leverage, of course, um, to get that. So residential, for me, it's always about just getting an asset that uh, can cover its costs and has growth upside, um, but good growth upside. And, you know, then you're going to get rental growth on it year after year if you buy in a good area. So the equation gets better the longer you hold. Commercial is where the, the real income is, Um even better than unit blocks, for instance. Like if you go buy a 10% gross yielding unit block, you're probably going to have four sets of rates on it that you've got to cover. So your overall return is not that fantastic. But if you go out and buy a 7 or 8% net return commercial, you're highly positively geared, even if you've got 100% debt at a 5.5% interest rate. And you can definitely get lower interest rates than that. Like my commercial debt is running at 4.69% interest rate. And, you know, that, that's just a really good set of numbers. The income is, it's heavy and it, it outstrips any of my residential stuff. And that's pushed me more towards that direction because I'm at a point where I'm not, I'm not trying to increase debt. I'm more trying to increase income only. And commercial is, you know, it's triple times when you, when you look at the net result. The, the the downside a lot of people might think with commercial is the loan to value ratio so obviously with with commercial if you if you're having to have a 60% lvr instead of say your 90% lvr then that's going to get you in more of a cash flow positive territory anyway but of course if you're talking net yields then the yields are better with the commercial is that a little bit of a hurdle for people getting into commercial that they're needing to to have a bigger deposit yeah, so most people are lending around sort of the 70% on commercial. Yeah. Um, some banks lend more, uh, like ING. Uh, when I was doing my loans, we're doing 25% deposits, but bank off 30%. And the way I look at it is, yes, you've got to chip in a bit more money, but the value of the properties, especially for the cash flow, is actually lower. So uh, and a good example that I've used in the past is we once bought a dentist in Brisbane and it was about an 80 square meter dentist and it was actually about 40% cheaper than the residential unit above with the floor, same floor space. Oh, and nice. yes, there was a, it was getting, you know, the guys upstairs were getting ripped off. It was getting pushed by a developer. Um, but I believe uh, lending came into it. So residential can allow people to borrow more tend to take a lot larger debt on and that just made the properties higher value. But um, yeah, look, I actually like the fact that commercial you need larger deposits because you generally take a, lo a lower debt on as well. So lower debt, higher cash flow, I feel like it's a better time in the market to target that type of asset. Lower risk as well, of, of course. What about if we think about residential versus commercial property, everyone needs somewhere to live. Businesses don't necessarily need to trade out of a premises. There are obviously exceptions to that. But I guess what I'm getting at is that things are things are changing. We're seeing major chains like Toys R Us going belly up, you know, Myers struggling. We're, we're moving online. Is that a consideration for you in investing with the commercial properties? You're, you're thinking about the types of industry businesses work in, so you're really effectively looking at the, the health of your tenant? Yeah, so that's the big one of the biggest parts of my job. We've really got to look into industries that are going to last the decades. So we target health, for instance. We target um, storage. So, you know, you mentioned Meyer and Toys R Us are going bust, but they're still going to ship and transport a physical object. So storage will come into it. 
there's population growth. Um, I'd, I'd target, um, you know, there's a certain part of Australia where we're buying a lot of small industrial units. And the reason is we've found out it costs 35% more to build, you know, acquire the land and build the industrial warehouse compared to building existing. So that, to me, tells me until prices grow 35%, there's going to be no new development of that particular type right. of asset. And if you if you can buy something below its replacement cost, and then you've got a really good holding income in the meantime, you're going to get more tenants because the population is growing around that, and they're not building enough, so rents will grow. And you know, there's going to be owner occupier, you know, like businesses still want to buy these properties too because they don't like paying yeah. rent, and that's a huge opportunity. And that's um, you know, that that's stuff that I'm not worried about any, you know, medium or long-term aspects. And plus, those types of business, uh, you know, maintenance, like the maintenance on a warehouse is nothing. Like besides the roof and a roller door, uh, they might have a mezzanine in there that, you know, requires a little bit of upkeep, but the tenant pays for all that, all the strata. So, yeah, we're not buying large retail spots uh, just because it's a risk. Like we do target, uh, you know, we've bought a few shopping centres, like all of them, but they're the types that, have on-site parking, and then they're anchored by a, like a Woolworths IGA Coles type thing. So it's a destination for people to go. There's normally a hairdresser in there. There's a you know dentist, doctors, uh, like a, even a chemist, a bottle. There's those types of businesses that make people go there. Um, but yeah, like the fashion retail side of things, we're not a big fan, and we wouldn't buy even if it was a you know a, a really good yield on it. Um, there are very there are exceptions to that if it's a really well-placed, you know, shop which leads itself to multiple different types of businesses entering that space. Uh, we'll yeah. consider it, but we've got to—you really got to look at it from a holistic view, and that's where it's a little bit more complicated than residential because you can't just picture it as this is where someone like me or you know someone's going to want to live. It's more—is this a viable business location long term? Does it have the foot traffic? Is it, uh, you know, if technology changes, how will that affect this type of business? Um, and I'll use another example. Like we've been, we're steering away from subways now because we've recently found that banks have started stop lending to subway businesses. Like people might think subway is a brilliant business yeah. to buy. Well, the banks don't. They're not lending to that business anymore because they're viewing it as a risk, which um, is probably... It's things like there's uh, dark kitchens getting created. That's where Uber Eats creates kitchens that multiple businesses yep. can use so they can quickly produce types of, um, you know, any type of food and ship it out to you. And that's a lot of businesses redundant. So you've got to be careful with fast food these days, even like um, childcare. There's some areas of Australia that have created oversupplies because it, it was too exciting to many people to own the childcare, so they kept building them. And some regional towns had three of these getting built at one point in time, yeah. which is too much. Um, so yeah, we look into all that. So but when there's um, the things like medical, aged care, um, you know, they're they're going to stand the and, test of time, as far as we know. Yeah, I mean, now. people are always going to to need to go to those places physically. Now, obviously, people can 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 engage yourself, Scott, with with your services. But if if people are wanting to sort of have their finger on the pulse with that sort of stuff, you know, such as the the subway lending and 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 how the banks are assessing stuff, how how can an average investor sort of hope to be across some of that information? Uh, look, it's a little difficult. Like. Uh, I'll admit it, the way I learn is through, I learn a lot through my clients because I deal with so many different types of clients. Like I, the way I learned about Subway was, um, you know, I've had a couple different um, clients that were franchise owners and they owned a number of different types of franchises and they started talking to me about their troubles with the bank and, you know, I was fascinated so I just dug deeper from there. Um, bankers, uh, high-level bankers can be quite good in that um, and honestly just reading like, yep. like the financial review, you know, keep up to date with the current affairs. There's so much in there that will, uh, you know, spike your interest. And once you, um, yeah, once you're interested in commercial, it all becomes relevant because you can make good money out of a good decision. And, um, you know, if you're just ahead of the masses, you know, and 
Let, let's say we let, let's think of a bit of a, a case study, if you wouldn't mind, of someone that sort of follows the, your 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 basic sort of principles. There, they might have one or two um, residential properties um, that uh, you know covering the costs. They're wanting to get into the commercial stuff, but you know saving for for a bit of a deposit. How do they get to that next level? Does it really demand that these properties that are looking after themselves have that that capital growth, or you know, is it a combination of the of hopefully having a good salary as well? What's what's been the sort of the launching pad for you to go from you know one to the next, uh, you know, over the first couple of properties that you've had? Yeah, so like my my journey was quite slow at the start. Like I bought two properties mm-hmm. over three years, um, so that's very you know standard to everyone and then the city market started growing so i leveraged out of the um you know success of my sydney properties i had two and then i bought into port macquarie and you know i was on the pulse there i was an engineer building things i knew exactly what was going on in town like we were literally quoting on jobs that weren't even announced yet so i could see there was just yeah. a lot in the pipeline so I, I walked quite heavily up there as well and just kept the cash flow up every time just because I, you know, I was still thinking, you know, what if the GC, you know, two hits, like it's going to stop a few of these jobs. Uh, and I bought, bought multiple yep. income, high yielding assets and they all did well. And then, um, you know, moved up and I bought a couple of unit blocks in the Gold Coast around Labrador and they did very well as well. Um, but the cash flow was just building each time. Uh, but yeah, for the, Average person, like my average client, you know, you buy a couple of properties and you're, uh, I always encourage them to keep saving as hard as possible because it's an overall picture. You need to create a business out of your portfolio. So they need to, a business requires mm-hmm. equity growing out of it and cash flow. So I, I wouldn't want to see my client go buy two properties that cost them five or 10 grand a year to hold. That's, that's a backward step. Now, if you can buy two properties that are, neutrally geared or slightly positively geared, you're going to be in a good position to save nice and quick. Um, you can then hopefully hopefully uh, have a you know a year or two of good growth under your belt um, by buying in the right market. And then by the time you get around to it, you've got enough money to potentially get into something like commercial property or maybe do a small duplex development to make uh, some equity out of the strata title subdivision. You know, there's options that you can consider so you always got to look at two columns, how to improve cash flow and how to improve equity. And if you always focus on the weakness, that will put you in a position to go for your third a little easier. So equity is your, your weakness and you've got a good income. You know, like we've been buying um, for the last four years down in Hobart and Launceston and the results are staggering down there. Like, you, you know, we've had some 20% yeah, yeah. growth results in one year. That all of a sudden... You're not like the cash flow is good still there. Like you'll you'll get an evenly geared property down there, and that will position you in quite well to go again. Especially if you've got a good income and you can service the new loan, you're uh, you're going to have a deposit there. And Ignoring yourself again. for a moment, Scott in a, a slightly different position for the average in, investor. But for, for, for the clients that you maybe with are in that sort of, you know, one to three property range, how does your strategy with them compare um, today from, say, three or four years ago from a from a finance point of view with, with lending, with the weakness in the, in the capital cities? What, what, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing helping to them to grow their portfolio today that, that maybe weren't there a couple of years ago? Uh, the biggest one, Sydney. Sydney has dropped in uh, a lot of equity in the recent 18 months. So people used to have sort of a big kitty of equity they could play with to then push into assets. So that's a lot of that's dried up. Um, so that that is going to slow people down. Uh, same deal with Melbourne. And lending is harder. So there was, um, you know, to go get beyond six, seven properties, it's much harder, as you know, because there are the serviceability calculators are, you know, they're far different to what they used were back in the the early day, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And is the equity harder so, to get out now as well? Yeah, like the valuations are conservative. Um, I've seen them, like they're factoring in further falls in Sydney. So even if you think your property is valued at a million, they're, they're coming back at, nine, you know, 950000 without much uh, evidence of that. I've seen a few of those cases. So it's, it's an issue that, 
I think it's going to be around for another year or two. It's not not forever. Like I'm actually seeing the demand for buyers is greater than ever. Like where we get 60 people a week call up, but most of them won't really want to buy a property but can't access a loan. And, um, you know, I think the, the minute Sydney flattens and, you know, I, I believe finance will, will relax somewhat, there'll be, you know, a drive to probably get back into Sydney at the low point. And uh, I think that will really help the other markets that haven't really had their day as well. So Brisbane, for instance, like local incomes up there are actually the exact same as Sydney. You know, I looked at the ABS stats the other day and it's, it's 83,000 versus 83,000. Wow. So incomes are good and healthy, but prices are half price compared to Sydney. So there's, there's pent up growth that's going to happen up there. And, you know, I think if you can position yourself in a, a well located suburb, buy under market value and, and just sit and be ready for, for the next upswing, I think that will be the best option for that most That is really people. quite astounding when you put it like that. I didn't realize the incomes were, were identical, but the, the house price being half, it's a real, it's a real enigma there in, in Brisbane. So, yeah, so some good advice for a potential, I don't want to say hotspot because we're a bit anti-hotspot, but uh, yeah. obviously do your due diligence, yeah. but there's some opportunities out there. Um, Scott, for someone in the early 30s with a portfolio in the tens of millions of dollars, um, it's funny to hear you consider yourself as defensive or, or cautious, and I'm sure that listeners w- would find that a little bit of an unusual way for you to describe yourself. Can you, can you sort of give us a bit of an idea about what you mean by that? Yeah, for sure. Well, number one, I run at about 55% debt, so that's um, considered conservative. So I could leverage up and buy more properties, but I choose not to. Um, like I said before, I've, I've always bought with the intention of things going wrong. So, you know, like uh, you know, like I bought a medical centre in Perth, and I thought, you know what, no matter what happens with the economy down there, people are still going to get sick, and that's going to keep that business going. Um, I bought a suit, like a little, oh, it was a 400 square metre convenience store in Perth. Um, and there's no other sort of big major shopping centres around there either. So there's a need for people to eat regardless of the economy. If the economy gets worse, they'll probably eat out less and stop and buy cheaper food at a supermarket more. So that's, I know it's recession-proof, but I'd likely believe that would be, uh, you know, decent, yeah, a decent business so that will carry through poor economic yeah. times. Um, so I always just think, you know, what What if? And, um, you know, I didn't, never got into development. That's that's a higher risk strategy. Um, so I just, I like the passive income style because it is it is more conservative. And I've just, um, you know, I've, I've had great results with my properties. I haven't had a, a big mistake moment. That's pushed me forward a few more years because most people that have done as much investing as I would have, would have had a, they probably would have jumped into like a big townhouse development and potentially lost like I know and I know a lot of people down in the southern shire of Sydney that are in uh, pretty bad ways because they've jumped into developments at the peak of the market and you know I was thinking of doing that at one point but I didn't because I I just thought you know what there's just too many unknowns in this fact you know in that scenario building townhouses when the prices are this high with finance as hard as it is and you know that has pushed me forward and just stick into the same old boring strategy, keep cash flow up with capital growth upside. Do you, do you think that's something investors see as a bit of a natural progression? You know, I'm going to get a couple of investment properties and then I'll build the equity and then I'm going to be a developer. It just kind of seems... Yeah, I, I do believe Yeah, I do believe a lot of people see that as a natural trajectory because you see the, the Harry Triggerboff stories and... You know, this guy in Melbourne with, you know, 500 million odd in uh, real estate. And it's just, that's not yeah. the norm. That's, uh, you know, that that's that's the top, you know, I don't know what percent that is. But there, there's only a handful of people running around with stories like that. But for the most everyday Australians, um, I, I just feel like playing it conservative and building along a work, like self-sustaining portfolio is the easiest way to get ahead. And... You know, you might not build a five hundred million dollar portfolio, but you'll be able to build something that will set you up for retirement, and that's that's the goal here. It's a, it's about buying your time back, and you know, if it happens to you at fifty or forty five or you know thirty, it's all the same. You just need a goal, and you know everyone's going to be running at different spe- speeds. But you know, having a 
having a an investment vehicle that can replace your income over the medium term is what it's all when, about. Get, getting back to your sort of the defensive way that you, you're investing and, and I think you've answered that question really, really well, you, you're at 55% debt. I'm, I'm assuming that in the beginning you would have had a, a much higher exposure to try and sort of, I guess, accelerate those results. Is, 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 is that correct and are you trying to sort of actively pull that down or will you sit at that sort of point? Yeah, big time. You hit the nail on the head. In the early days, I was, you know, my first property was yeah. 90% LVR. And my second, I, I remember I went with uh, ANZ. They were doing 15% deposits with no LMI at the time. So I, I jumped on that bandwagon. So I was running at 85 my second one. And then beyond that, uh, like my next one was a Port Macquarie unit block purchase. I had to do an 80% loan on that one. So with the growth and all that, I started running at about 80. So it trickled down as time went on. Uh, started at 90, and over the years, it just um, dropped down. And I haven't refinanced for quite a while now, um, and I don't plan to because, you know, um, as I said, I'm not about just refinancing and increasing debt forever. Uh, it's more just get that income up. And I'm going to be transitioning more and more into commercial, and that will involve you know, I've bought a, I've bought about six or seven properties in Brisbane. I believe that market's going to have a very good five years. At the end of that five years, I might sell three of them, and then use the profits out of that to transition into, you know, maybe a couple of really high quality commercial properties. You know, like another medical centre, for instance, or an industrial complex, stuff like that, rather than just hold, you know, dozens of houses. You know, there's um, I don't think there's much logic in that long term. You've you've mentioned before that you favour buying properties with land. Obviously, you've 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 bought unit blocks, you've strata titled them. I'm sure you've bought individual units. Um, what what's the reasoning behind the land, and does that just relate to to residential, or or are you thinking that with commercial as well? Yeah, I just um, I've only ever bought one unit by itself. That was a Maroubra unit in Sydney, and I sold that one to fund a, a purchase in Sydney, yeah. like a house to live in. Uh, but everything else, like even the units I own currently, it's I own the unit block, so that includes the land under it. And my theory with that is you can add value to the land long term. So even though I might not see it right now, they might say you could, like there might be R4 zoning on it that you can build up one day. If you just own a, a unit up in a high rise, um, you're at the mercy of a strata uh, that could increase, or um, you know, you've, you, you're just not going to benefit as much from the long-term land value. There's still a land component in units, yes, but um, it's not as much as say owning a 600 square meter block in Sutherland, because I was going to buy a unit in Sutherland for a similar price. That I actually looked back at it the other day, and uh, the the units around. Like I was going to buy one for about four hundred thousand. They're around six hundred thousand down there. But my four hundred eighty thousand dollar property has turned into one point zero five mil. Mm. It's, a, it's a big difference, and I know that's not the standard trajectory. But I just feel like, especially particularly with my age, I've got decades left in the market. You know, it's the old saying: they're not making any more land. If you own the land, you're just going to have more control, and there could be that sort of a uh, that X factor where there might be a zoning change or, you know, you, you can build a duplex yourself and add value down the track. Like, it's at least it's sort of, um, there's, there's more the upside, upside just yeah. as a general problem. Um with the yeah. election approaching and and potential changes to negative gearing, I'm guess you with that conservative approach that we've talked about, you've you've probably put yourself in a position where the negative gearing changes don't really change your portfolio fundamentally, but it will change the market. Um, I'm I'm wondering what sort of impacts that will have on the average investor um, that maybe is a little bit more negative geared and, and, and where you see opportunities in the market for the next little while regardless of, of which um, which party wins wins leadership. Yeah, so this is just my theory, uh, my crystal ball. I, I believe there's going to be a greater flight to higher yielding assets. So. Negative gearing is obviously going to be, uh, you know, one of the reasons people bought a, a negative cash flow property is because they could claim some back in tax time. If that's no longer the case, it's going to make the investments um, with those poor cash flows less attractive, and 
ones with cash flow more attractive. So that will incur, increase demand. Like I believe commercial is going to be one of the big beneficiaries here because like you still claim full depreciation. Uh, lending has uh, different laws, different regulations in commercial. So, you know, some people like in my position can keep lending in commercial but can't in residential. So that's going to create a flight to commercial, which will increase the demand, which will compress yields in commercial, which compressing yields means people pay more for the same rent. And when that happens, that's called capital growth. So I feel like there could be a, some capital growth happening in commercial spaces. Um, with another policy Mabel is going to bring in is um, like the yep. franking credits uh, on shares. So if you're claiming an income from high-yielding shares like Telstra, the banks, uh, those types of guys, and all of a sudden your income is going to be less because there's less of a, a refund in tax time, that could push more people towards things like property funds, commercial property funds, um, because the tax benefits are still there. It might push people to wanting to own their own commercial yeah. property outright as well. I think the commercial market is looking quite healthy. And, you know, if, if you buy into the right industry, uh, you know, there's like the, the medical, the storage, the um, well-located, uh, like the office like uh, market particularly is, like right now, uh, according to Colliers, it's the number one uh it's got the best market sentiment out of any right. commercial sector still. And, um, you know, I found that quite interesting because there is a, you know, a lot more flexible work arrangements happening these days, but like things like shared workspaces, there are, um, you know, a lot of, um, there's not a great deal of supply in that space that's being created, but, you know, small businesses are doing well in Australia as a general comment. And that's made this uh, office space fairly in demand. So, yeah, I think there's opportunities ahead. Um, negative gearing is kind of a distant thought for us. Uh, we haven't really ever bought for that reason. Um, I don't know why anyone would. I'd rather, you know, lose 30, I'd rather pay tax. You know, if you're buying a cafe for $100,000, like that's how much it makes a year, you've got to pay 30% tax. So that means you're 70% mm. ahead at the end of the year. Put seventy thousand bucks a year. Why would you go buy a cafe <laughs> that loses a hundred thousand just so you yep. can claim a portion of it back? You're still losing money. It's baffling. Yeah, people a lot of people still go to their account and say, "I need to buy an investment because I'm paying too much tax." I'm guessing that um, you have a, a, a whopping tax bill from time to time, but but I guess you frame that as as in, well, here is you know someone clipping the ticket on my success rather than helping me out because I'm actually going backwards. Of course, of course, and it, um, I rather live in a better cash flow position month to month and hang on to that tax bill at the end of the year where I get some back. You know, getting paid each month more is a lot more attractive. And, um, yeah, I think it's just people get, uh, you know, driven by their accountant. Their accountant's job is to save income, uh, save tax. So, of course, they're going to tell you how to save tax. But if you look at it as, as an overall wealth, you know, making position, the accountant sometimes isn't the best person to talk to. It's, um, you know, you've got to look at it from the entire spectrum. You know, what's your real net result at the end of the year going to be? And, you know, it's, uh, you just got to. Now, Scott, keep you that started, balance. um, Rethink Investing a couple of years ago. Um, you've been named investment. Your investment property strategic investor of the year in 2009. You've made the BOW Fast 100, um, two years in a row. Um, I want to know what sort of prompted you to start that buyer's agency and, and what you sort of put down that success to. Uh, it, honestly, it was it was an accidental business. Like I was in a, I think it was a Australian Property Investor magazine um, a long time before I got into any of this and I had three or four people call up and say, can you help me buy the types of properties you're buying? And I did, I helped them. I didn't make any money out of it. And I helped some family members and... I actually enjoyed it and then I actually started getting referrals uh, and I thought, you know what, why don't I charge this? I didn't even know what a buyer's agency was at the time. Um, and then I quickly realised you've got to get licences in all different states and, you know, you've got to be a real estate. So I got all the all the tickets and it just grew organically from there. And then back in the early days, Facebook marketing was is quite effective. Um, it's a little harder now because they've changed the algorithms. You've got to spend more to get the same results. So business grew very quick. Um, and then the word of mouth over time where people have bought three or four properties through me, you know, years ago, they've 
come back and they want to get into, you know, like the commercial stuff or we do like duplex developments. And uh, yeah, I think we've just become one of the most well-known buyers agents in the country and that just feeds on itself. So it's, I do it for no other reason other than I, it's something I love to do it. And, you know, I even, when I was looking for myself, even when I worked long hours, I'd get home <laughs> and spend hours on realestate.com just looking at every single listing in the country nearly. And it was uh, even today, like my favorite part of the job is to hunt for a property. And I, I love getting, like we get access to a huge amount of offline stock and it, like just knowing we're the only ones looking at it and no one else can touch it and we can negotiate one-on-one with a vendor and you get very good at negotiating because you've heard every <laughs> single angle, yeah. you know, a hundred times through the agent. So you can really start to, you know, it gets to the point where you actually know the exact amount, uh, like as a percentage that a particular individual real estate agent will discount by. So you list the price and you'll discount by 4%, for instance, and you can really start, you know, going into that kind of detail and um, you, you feel like you've got an edge and you do and that's <laughs> it's it's a fun feeling and that just sort of leads into I feel sorry for the agents really. uh, when when your number pops up on their phone. <laughs> um, Scott, how do people get in touch with you? Best one, probably just go to our website www.rethinkinvesting.com.au uh, or call our number at 1-300-965-551 and yeah, we 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 can run you through you know, updates on the markets. So you know what types of properties we're buying at the moment, and yeah, obligation free. It's uh, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of help you buy the same types of things that myself and my wife were buying, and the guys that work for me, we're, we're all following the same strategy. So when people hear yeah, about the value uh, of the, the portfolio and the time that it's taken, and the passive income and the travel, there'll be I'm sure there'll be a lot of I'll have what uh, what he's having. Um, if you can impart one piece of advice, though, for, for our property investor listeners, uh, what would you nail that down to? I'd basically, well, a couple to, to investing, um, become a, a frugal saver is vital. Once you've got that under the belt, you can then uh, approach a bank. The bank will then lend accordingly. Buy under your budget. If the mortgage broker says you can buy 500000 Maybe consider buying a 350 gram property. It gives you more options moving forward. And treat every property purchase as a business decision. Is the cash flow good enough to justify you taking on that loan? And is there upside in the, uh, you know, in the property itself? And if it doesn't tick those boxes, just move on to the next property. And be open to other types of properties. A lot of people listening now might only think residential. There's a whole different market out there that there's actually 40 times less buyers, and that's commercial. There's 40 times the buyers in residential. So if you get into that space, you're going to be uh, you know, in a smaller crowd, and that's uh, definitely worth looking into. I love it. Scott, thanks very much for, for sharing all your knowledge there. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> 